0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. The title of today's message is The God of Grace and Peace Who Gives Us Purpose. About 25 years ago a movie came out and I'm not advocating seeing the movie because it needs to be filtered, but the movie City Slickers came out with Billy Crystal. This is back in 1991. Anyway, there's a scene in the movie, and he goes to his kid's career day, I guess, and they're adolescents and grade school, and he's at midlife, and he's struggling with meaning. He has the classic age-old myth that we're defined by what we do, and they ask him what he does, and he says, I sell airtime on the radio. So anyway, he starts to tell the kids what he does, and he starts losing it, and he kind of slips into kind of a midlife crisis meltdown. And if you remember the scene, it goes something like this. He goes, kids, value this time in your life, because this is the time in your life when you still have choices. It goes by so quickly. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. You're 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, "What happened to my 20s?" Your 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. Your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. Your 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still too loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and your wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating dinner at 2, lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. <laughs> and you spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate in soft yogurt and muttering, How come the kids don't call? By your 80s, you have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some nurse who your wife can't stand, but you call mama. Any questions? That quote from that movie, if you've ever seen that scene, it's hilarious, but it's pitiful at the same time. Is that really what life has to offer? A series of endless rapid-fire events? Do I get to my 80s and I'm babbling to a nurse? If that is the way you see life, then you don't have any purpose. It's interesting in this book, It's very rich, and before the events that transpire in the book of Revelation, God is actually setting the tone for how he wants you to think about things because the book is full of judgment. It is packed with wrath and things like that that could frighten you and me. And what God is doing in his salutations is he's trying to balance us a little bit to not get so one-sided. There's no doubt there's going to be a lot of judgment. But at the same time, he wants to show at the beginning of the book his grace and mercy, that he's a loving God. He's given people plenty of opportunities to respond to him and that he offers to them purpose and meaning. As you see in the quote I gave you, the guy was struggling with meaningless. He had no purpose in life. He was defining himself by what he did. And God doesn't want you defining your life like that. He wants you to have purpose. And in, in this little salutation, believe it or not, he tells us where we've come from what he did for us, what we're supposed to be doing, and what our future is. And it gives us a balanced view of our lives. Because if not, if we don't have this perspective that he's going to give us, you will get caught up in the rat race. You will get caught up in the daily grind. And Monday morning, you will not look forward to You will look forward to getting to the weekend every week. Life will be a drudgery, one endless event after another of unavoidable experiences. And you don't want that. Life does have meaning. It does have value. And you have a glorious future ahead of you. And that's what God's trying to set the tone with. So what he does is he addresses the churches in Asia. Obviously, he's addressing all the churches in this salutation. Now, let me make a note about this. In chapter 1 through 3, he's going to deal with the churches, and it's going to be a message directly to us. And then after that, and four on to the last end of the judgments, which will end up in the second coming in Revelation 19, that's primarily addressed to Israel. So what we're going to do is really unpack chapters 1 through 3 because that's a message to us. This is the message God wants us to know about him and what he's doing in the world. Because you can get discouraged. I mean, I want you to really think about what you're seeing in America and around the world. A lot of Christians are coming to me saying, I don't think life is going to ever be the same. And I say, you're right. It's not. Not the way things are happening because it's prophetically going towards a certain direction. You're not going to get prayer back in the school. You're not going to get the Ten Commandments back on the wall in the courthouses. You're not going to get gay marriage unraveled. You're not. We realize now that life has drastically changed. And the way the Middle East and all that is forming up, it's forming the alliances. There's no doubt about it. Life is not going to be the same. But it doesn't mean that you're purposeless, that your destiny has changed. It doesn't mean that. Your environment might have changed, but you, your plan that God has for you hasn't. It's still the same. And what we're going to do is discover that today and look at what he says to us. So let's look at the salutation today. And look what the God of grace and peace gives us as a message of hope for our lives now and for the future. First principle you want to see in the text is the Lord gives us grace and truth for our purpose. We have to have those things to give us purpose. Otherwise, we won't have any purpose. And he starts off in verse 4, and he says this, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, or Turkey, Grace to you and peace. Now, that's part of the salutation, but that's important words that we need to capitalize on. Grace, unmerited favor to the churches, to those in the churches. That's the attitude God has towards us, is grace. That's how he deals with us and lost humanity. He deals with lost humanity with grace. And if you accept that grace, that unmerited favor in salvation, the implication is salvation then you will receive shalom or peace. And that's what John's trying to say here. It's the Hebrew shalom is the idea here about peace. Well, what do you mean? What is this shalom? Well, if you accept the offer of grace from God about salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, the cessation of hostility between you and God stops. Harmony, completeness, a state of calm and peace between you and God happens to you. Now, that doesn't happen to unbelievers. It only happens to those who accept God's grace. And that is the promise of what the abundant life is about, is about this shalom, this peace. And so he's offering that to the church saying, I am the God of grace and shalom. I offer this to you. Now, that's in contrast to the rest of the book of Revelation, which we constant wrath. But he wants us to see this. And then he continues to explain those things he offers and He explains who he is. From him who is, and who was, and who is to come. He's the Lord of eternity. Believe it or not, what John's trying to infuse in here is the the Tetragrammaton, which is the name of God, which I think we pronounce it correctly. I'm not sure if we do or not, but it's Yahweh. And in English, when you read your English Bible, when Moses asked who is sending him, God said, I am. And in the English, we don't get the full nuance of that because it sounds like a present tense statement. But in the Hebrew, when he says this to Moses, he is saying, I'm the God who is, who was, and is to come. The Hebrew actually has all three tenses involved in it. And then he says, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits before God's throne is the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits, the reason the Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits, it's the full or complete manifestation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can see this in Isaiah 11, 2, that the Messiah would have the fullness of the Holy Spirit and all the manifestations of that fullness when he was here on earth. Interesting enough, just to make a side note, the reason the body of Christ must work together in a a community is because each of us have different parts of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we have to bring them all together in order to have the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit in our church Messiah had all of the aspects on him as the Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered him a church must use the body of Christ as one aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministries here one of aspects here and ones here and we bring them all together to be a complete body. That's Isaiah 11. Also, it's a reference to Zechariah chapter 4 as well, the fullness of the Spirit. And then it says in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness or the martyr, it's an allusion to Psalm 89, in his role as a prophet when he first came, and the firstborn from the dead. The idea of firstborn is an ancient rabbinical term, It has to do with preeminence. Jesus is the first glorified individual that's been resurrected from the dead. And so he has preeminence. He's first in priority. We will follow suit in the rapture as we are resurrected from the dead as well. And so it's referring to that. And then it says, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, that is a reference to the Davidic covenant, by the way. And the Davidic covenant means that Jesus has the right to rule because he's from David's dynasty. And notice it says the kings of the earth. See, Revelation, I want you to notice this. It's a technical term. Revelation will always refer to the earth. The earth dwellers will be a major theme in Revelation. To be off the earth means you're going to escape judgment, which implies the rapture. So when Jesus comes back, the second coming, he's coming back to rule the earth. It's very earth-focused because the Davidic covenant is earth-focused, where Jesus rules from a political throne on David, From David's throne. At that time, and just to give you a preview, we'll we'll look more in depth at the second coming. When Jesus comes back, it is to take ownership of the planet. It is to take his rightful rule. Right now, he's not ruling from this planet. Now, we understand Jesus is sovereign. He is God. He's ruling everything. But right now, The kings of this earth are ruling it, and the god of this world, Satan, is ruling this planet. And so when he comes back, he's coming back to take over. It is not a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual and physical kingdom. It's not just a spiritual kingdom alone. And so what's the point here? What is all this trying to say in the salutation? That this truth that John is about to give us, that's coming from the triune God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Son, is a message of grace and peace, and this message about him gives me purpose. How so? Well, again, we can see this in the coming of Jesus when John talked about him. In John chapter 1, he says this in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ is the idea. What do you mean? Well, in order to have purpose in this life, and this is what he's trying to say, you must know who God is. And right there here in this formula, it's a Trinitarian formula. This is the one true God. And the God that we serve, the one true God, is a triune in nature we call the Trinity. Now, why is this important? Well, The triune God is saying, I'm offering grace and shalom to you. He is the God of love and relationship. That's what this message is from the triune God. Do you see how it balances out when he pours out his wrath? He is saying... I want a relationship with lost humanity. I am seeking to save that which is lost, and I will do it by grace, unmerited favor, so that people can have my shalom. So the idea is, this is the God of relationship and love. Contrast this with Islam. The fake God of Islam, the pagan deity of Islam, there's no concept of love in Islam. That God, that fake God... They describe him as a one God, but it's radical monotheism. It's just one. Isn't it interesting that even before God created you and I, the triune God could have love? See, love has to have a subject-object relationship. So the father could love the son, the son loved the Holy Spirit, and vice versa. In Islam or fake pagan religions... Because there's only one God, there can't be love, because who did he love prior to creation? And see, when it says that God is love, it implies a trinity, that there's a relationship within the Godhead. That's huge. That's amazing. And I think all of you understand that. And this is trying to balance this out, that this is the God of relationship, that he wants a relationship. Okay, so explain the application of this. I get that. God's a triune God who wants relationship. Here's the deal. A lot of people that are lost have a distorted view of God. They don't know this about Him. And unfortunately, even Christians today who are saved and know God and know about the Trinity still carry a mixture of distortions about God. And hence, the grace and shalom that God is offering to the churches is not accepted by them. God wants to give that grace and wants to give shalom, but a lot of Christians refuse to accept it because they have a distortion and a weird, muddy mixture of false beliefs about God. So, right now, God is trying to explain this is who I am. Let me give you an example of what a distorted view of God does to people. Christian woman was going through divorce, husband left her for another woman, left her alone. She's isolated, she's in pain unhappy, in great need, no friends, isolated. She wanted to reach out to God, wanted to pour herself out to God. She felt alone and isolated, and she didn't have the strength to deal with what she was dealing with. And she wanted to reach out to God, but she didn't. Why? She just couldn't. She couldn't reach out to God. Why? She had a distorted perception of God. What do you mean? Well, Even though she desired, she got her image of God from her father when she grew up. She was raised in a Christian home. But as she grew up, she grew up with a harsh dad. And this dad was, you had to be compliant with him to get along with him. You needed to withdraw. And she never really could express her emotion. He was kind of volatile. He was, in her mind, dangerous. And so she never really expressed her emotions to her father because that was no good. And she saw what he did to her brothers when they spoke up. So she, she got her image of her father and transposed that on God. And a lot of people do this. A lot of people do this because we, we get our first images of authority in God from our parents. So she felt that she couldn't reach out to God because she had this distorted view of God that he's like her father. And you better not express your emotions. You better not go before him and make him mad because we got to walk on eggshells because we can't light him up and he'll get mad at us. And she was doing this whole thing with God. So she missed out on getting the spiritual help from God, his grace and shalom, because of her distorted view of him. That is like the number one thing that people are struggling with. They have a distorted view of God and they are putting on God something they learned from their parents. It's the number one thing. So let me give you some false views about God to make sure that these things are not becoming a wedge between you and God, this triune God that offers shalom and grace. Here's some false views, and you might want to jot them down. The first one is the impotent God. This kind of God is not a source of power for you and I because he's not omnipotent, so people don't seek his power, even Christians. They think God's powerless. So what do they do in life? They seek their own power. That's the impotent God. But yet God in Scripture says, I'm omnipotent. Two, the neglectful God. They see God that he's not really a source of their provision. He won't provide. He didn't provide in the past, and he won't provide now. So they need to provide for themselves. They need to trust themselves. These are Christians, by the way. And then there's the ignorant God. Can't go to God because he has no answers for me. They have the Bible in front of them, but they don't go to the Bible because they don't think and believe there are answers in there for them because he's not all wise. And so they go to other sources for information. Then there's the unavailable God. The unavailable God always lets people down. He's not for you. You can't go to him. You can't turn to him. He's not there to support you when you're coping with life. That's the unavailable God. And then there's the unpleasable God. You can never please him. It just comes from their family a lot of times. They're trying to perform for God. I can never make him happy. I can never try hard enough. I'm never good enough. I can never get it right with him. So I know he's ticked off at me. It's the God of grace, right? He's the God of grace. Don't you not understand? Grace is not performance. Then there's the unsafe God. This God is not a source of protection for them. He kind of winks at sin. He winks at selfishness and dismisses hurtful behavior and overlooks responsibility. This God doesn't care about behavior because if he did, he would have stopped the person who was doing stuff to me when I was younger. Where is he? He's the unsafe God. That's a distortion. Then there's the disconnected God. He's not with us in hard circumstances. He's unavailable, uninvolved. He's just not there. He's not emotionally there to help me. That's the disconnected God. Yet Jesus said, God knows when the sparrow falls. Aren't you much more valuable? And then there's the angry God. Now, when we see the wrath of God in the book of Revelation, you're going to see God's anger, but it's the righteous indignation. When people see God as angry, they see him through the lens of a parent or something like that. It's a different type of anger. It's an anger that they describe as, well, he's irritated with me. I don't feel safe with him. Like the illustration I gave you, they feel like they have to walk on eggshells with him. They can't go to him. So you know what? When you have these distortions about the triune God who offers grace, mercy, and shalom, that wants the relationship with you, wants to connect to you and I, when you have these distortions, you will not want to pray. You will not want to be in contact with him. You will not want to read your Bible. You will not be hungry for him. You will not seek him when you fail. He will be too harsh for you, and you will avoid him. That is a distraction. That is a distortion. And what ends up happening is Christians start living at a distance from Jesus. So he's saying, what I'm about to tell you is going to rock your world. Your world around you is going to be chaotic, but I'm here for you. I will provide for you. I will be there, but you've got to get rid of the distortions because the distortions are keeping you away from me. It's not a good road to be on. But that's what he's starting to do at the, at the outset is explain who he is. Second principle is this. The Lord gives us our identity for our purpose. Now, in doing this, he's going to talk about what he did for us and then what positions he gives us. We already understand who God is. He wants a relationship with us. But here's what he did for us. To him who loved us. In your text, it looks like it's a past tense, but actually a lot of scholars translate this in the present tense, that not only did he love us, prior to even creating us, but he continues to love us today. And that would be theologically accurate. It's present tense. So he loved us. So the basis of why God did what he did for us is because of love. That is the first governing principle in why God does anything he does. A lot of people will start with God's sovereignty, like a Calvinist. They'll start with God's sovereign and they'll start with sovereignty first. And then that sovereignty controls all his actions. What you see in Scripture is the exact opposite. What starts everything off is love. Love. That begins everything. So sovereignty is seen through love. His plan and his actions are seen through love first. Love begins everything. So what did he do? He loved us first, and then what did he do? And washed us from our sins with his own blood. Notice the order. Love first, then I wash you. Not I wash you, clean up your life, and then I love you. See, it's different. It's love first and then washing. Now, obviously, John or even the Trinity is directing us back to the cross. That's where our sins were dealt with on the cross. And that's what he's wanting to focus on. Look what he did for you while you are still yet a sinner. He shed his blood. Messiah shed his blood and died for you on that cross. He wants to hearken back the church to that time. Why? Because this gives us purpose. This demonstrates that yet while we were still sinners, we were valuable enough for the second person of the Trinity to come to this planet, become one of us, take on an additional nature, die on a cross, resurrect, so he could have a relationship with us so he could restore what the locusts have eaten and bring it back, so we can be with him for all eternity. That's what motivates him is his love. And he wants you to know, this is what I did for you. If you want to know if I love you, I did this for you. You need no other example other than my son dying for you to know that you are loved. You think, well, that's a simple message that even a five-year-old can understand. That's true. But yet I know adults that don't accept it. They don't think that God loves them. They think they've done too much in their life for him to love them. He couldn't. You have to be better, they think, or perform for him better or do other things. i got to be a nicer person. No, no, no. This is not about performance. Grace is unmerited favor. You don't perform for him. And even after you've become a Christian, a lot of Christians go back into trying to perform for him. You don't perform for him. It's a basis of love in a relationship. So he tells it, and this is the purpose. Now he's going to give you what you're supposed to be doing. This is what I did for you. This is where you came from. This is what I've done. And verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is true. Amen means it is true. What he has done then, I not only died for you, But I have also restored to you positions. And these two positions, there's there's two of them in the text. There's multiple positions all through the New Testament about our identity in Christ. And the first thing John is trying to discuss with us is you're a king and you're a priest. He has made you and given you this position by you accepting his grace. And you think, well, what is the big deal about that? It's everything. It's everything. Most people that lose meaning in life, that their life is purposeless, is because they lack identity. They don't know who they are. And so what tends to happen, like the illustration I gave you from City Slickers, they define themselves by what they do. That's not how we're to operate. Because, for instance, let's say you're a wonderful surgeon You're a neurosurgeon, and your hands are a gift from God, and you work on people's spinal cords and brains and things like that. What happens to your identity when you get arthritis and you can't move your hands anymore? I can tell you what happens. They lose their identity. What happens when you can't do the job that you've done all your life? You lose your identity. That's wrong. That's a wrong view of life. We don't get our identity from the things we do. We get our identity... By being in Messiah and understanding the things he's done for us. Okay, break this out for me, Brandon. What is the implications of you and I being in the position of a king priest? Well, let's unpack that. In God's understanding of a king priest, a king, in God's understanding, if you go back to King David, is there to serve others, not to be served. And then a priest represents man to God and God to man. Notice the functioning of those two positions has to do with how you relate to other people, that you're responsible for other people, that you are your brother's keeper for other people, and your job to those other people is to serve them, to represent God to them and them to God, to be a go-between, a minister of reconciliation. And we can impact that a little bit more, but this identity has huge implications. And and I'm going to give you four little caveats about our identity in Christ in any role that we're given. And let me relate it to being a king priest. Our identity in Christ gives us the first thing it does. The implication is it gives us connection. Any position we get has connecting points. What do you mean by this? Think about this as a king priest. In order to be a proper king where you serve others, or a proper priest where you serve others between God and man, you have to be connected. You have to be connected to the body of Christ, and you must be connected to humanity. You must be able to evangelize and minister to the body of Christ. That implies you have to be with others. So many Christians right now in America are practicing isolationism. They are not connected to others. Now, they're connected to their little families, and that's fine, but they're not connected to anything or anyone outside of their families. Look, that's not right. That's dysfunctional as far as being a king priest. You must be responsible for other people outside of your own family. You must be serving people outside of your own family. Being a king priest doesn't mean you're a good mom and dad. That's not what this is implying. It goes beyond the immediate family. And here's the deal. If you don't have those connections, you can't operate correctly in life. No wonder people struggle with their purpose. Because if he has made us a king and priest and you're not functioning in that role, you're missing your purpose. You're going to have this gut feeling of saying, something's not right. I feel empty. That's what you'll feel. So it's connection. The second implication is it gives us definition. And any position you'll see in Scripture, these positions that are in Christ give us definition. What do you mean? It tells us who we are and who we are not. It dispels lies. If we believe we're defined by what we do or what other people have told us in life, an ex-spouse, parents, grandparents, we're defined by what they do, that's wrong. We're defined by what Christ says about us. Who we are and who we are not gives us that definition. The third thing, it gives us reality. Being a king priest gives us reality. What do you mean? Well, we have a tendency probably in our lives to be either perfectionists or idealists. And so we want life to be perfect. We want life to be ideal. And the problem we have is life is not that way. And we become very disappointed in life, disillusioned, whatever you want to call it, about life because we want it to be ideal and we want it to be perfect. And it's almost like we forget about the fall, that everything's broken in this life. Well, in this position of a king-priest, when you start functioning in this position, what you'll find out is you fall short of the position that you've been given. Yeah, that's Intentional. That's very intentional. Do you know why? The whole point of sanctification is you are to live up to the positions you've been given. You are to be sanctified and become more like Christ so that in the future, in the messianic kingdom, you can be a full-functioning priest and king in that time period. The whole point of this age is to get you prepped and ready for that. Now, here's the deal. Once you start functioning, okay, I want to be in that position, I want to function as a king priest, a minister of reconciliation, and serving others. What will start happening is you'll start seeing yourself fall short. You'll see yourself fail. Ah oh, man, I should have helped that person, I should have done this, I should. And what that does is it grounds you into reality. What do you mean? To understand ourselves that we're on a path of repairing. And preparing brings us humility. Most people that miss their sense of purpose in life are too prideful to know they need to be humble to find their sense of meaning. And so it grounds us because we'll see where we fall short and we'll see where we need to get better at. and We need to work on this and and God will cheer us on, but that's what it does. It grounds us. And the fourth thing, the fourth reality of these positions is it gives us confidence. It not only grounds us, but it gives us confidence. What do you mean by that? It causes us to mature and to use the gifts God's given us for those positions. So here's the question. Do you know what gifts God has given you spiritually? Do you know what experiences God has given you to help other people? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing? How to use those gifts in the office of king and priest? If you don't, you haven't even began so the point he's trying to say is, to give us confidence, you have to start maturing. And then as you're using your gifts, you'll see that you're confident and you're getting better at it. And God's saying, good, keep going, keep going, because eventually I'm going to give you a position in the Messianic kingdom that's going to require everything of you. And so it's a preparing of this. So in essence, you can see the implications of a king-priest. You have to be connected. It defines what you're supposed to be doing. It gives you reality, and it gives you competence. Now, here's the deal. A lot of Christians don't know this. They don't know their positions. They don't know what these positions do for them. And hence, they start mixing their purposes from Christ with purposes of their own mind and from their own worldview. Now, just like I told you, about the distorted views of the Trinity and what that does to people and how they start seeing and doing God and keeps them at a distance, when they start mixing Christ's purpose for their life with what they think is their purpose, I can tell you right now, they get very discouraged because they have one foot in the world and they have one foot in Christianity and they're torn. The purposes of the world, simple, simple. Power, money, prestige, that's it. It's encapsulated in those three items. You can look at every politician, every person in Hollywood, it's those three items. Money, power, prestige, or slash fame. If you play that game in your own personal walk with the Lord, how does that mix with you being a king priest who is supposed to be serving other people and responsible for them? Because in that worldview, they look out for number one. They're not worried about anyone else. They have people serving them. And do you see how the clash of worldviews starts happening? And this is what causes the angst in Christians. And they're missing their purpose in life. And so we tell them this. We talk about the Scriptures, and they still walk away unsatisfied. Well, it's not, yeah, king, priest, what does that do for me? Oh, what does it do for you? Everything. But the problem is your values are over here. Of course, me telling you that you're a king priest would not bring you any value if you have the values of the world. Of course, it wouldn't make any sense. You'd walk out and say, what's the big deal. That's the problem. A mixture will bring a distortion to you. And those positions that Christ has given you because of his sacrifice on the cross and because of the new covenant will be useless. It's funny, I was reading about a a bodybuilder famous guy that went on one of these late night talk shows and the host brought him out and wanted to show him off to the audience so he came out and he he was flexing and doing all his poses and stuff like that with a big grin on his face and the host goes boy you sure have big muscles man he goes let me ask you this what do you use those muscles for and the guy just kept grinning and he just kept flexing. He was doing all these poses and stuff like that. And he just, you know, didn't say a word. And again, the host comes back to him and says, Hey, I just got one question. What do you do with all those muscles? And that guy just kept flexing and smiling in front of the camera. And the implication was, This is what I do with my muscles. I just flex them in front of people. And the implication was, Oh, you bodybuild for ego. You bodybuild for other people to see, so it builds up your pride and ego. But you don't use those muscles to do anything with, to help other people. You don't use those muscles maybe in a sports competition or anything. You simply weightlift for your ego. Gotcha. And a lot of Christians have these positions of being a king priest but it's useless to them. They don't use them. They don't know what it's implying, because they are too stuck in the world's values to even bother with them. That can't be us. Otherwise we'll be the bodybuilder flexing on TV, not knowing what to do with the muscles. Third point: The Lord secures our destiny for our purpose. And in the salutation, he translates us all the way to the end. He jumps ahead. And in verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is the source of our destiny. This is our future. Explain this a little bit, Brandon. Obviously, it's a reference to the second coming, right? He's jumped with the church saying, he's coming in the clouds. Okay, it's referring to second coming, but the clouds. What is this cloud thing? Because you'll see clouds all over the Scripture. He's coming in the clouds. He rides a cloud. Uh, Jesus was in the ascension taken up in a cloud, right? The cloud is the Shekinah glory. That's what that is. Now, the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament and New Testament is either a very, very bright light or fire, or it's a cloud or it looks like smoke. Okay? So it's a visible manifestation of the presence of God who is invisible. So God accommodates our creatureness because we can't see the invisible God. He accommodates us by knowing when he's there by the Shekinah glory, whether it's fire, light, smoke, or clouds, so we can see this. This is why when you see Jesus at the second coming, he's enveloped with clouds. This is why on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw the light emanating through Jesus' body and was the Shekinah glory coming out. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus is God and the proof that he's God is all the proofs he's given in the New Testament, but also that the Shekinah glory is with them. The only being in the universe that has Shekinah is God. So he's coming in the clouds. So here's the idea. What's the implications for us of understanding he comes in the clouds? Well, simple. The invisible God, because we can't touch him, see him, taste him, feel him, and he's invisible to us, requires one thing from you and I, faith. Do you see how that matches? The invisible God, because you can't touch him, see him, you can't make an idol of him because he's invisible, It makes perfect sense that this is what I require. I require faith then because you can't sense me. You must simply believe. And then he goes this way. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Referring to the second coming. Every eye will see him. Referring, It's not referring to the rapture. The rapture, no one will see him. It's a secret coming. It's the thief in the night. And the rapture is without any signs. And he will rapture the church away secretly. We will just disappear. And be taken into heaven. And people won't know where we're at. Maybe they'll have a guess. Maybe they'll come up with some crazy conclusions that aliens took us or something out. uh, You know, who knows what they'll say. Or that God took the bad people off the planet. But when the second coming happens, he says, everyone sees this one. Everyone, and he will be accompanied by the Shekinah glory. And so at this point, it's not an invisible return. The parousia, the second coming, is not an invisible return. It's a physical return of Messiah to the planet to rule the planet. All this is tied up into our destiny. We are coming back with him to help him rule the planet. That's the idea. That's your destiny is to rule and reign with Christ. He's promised that to us, right? But then notice the implications. He goes, even they who pierced him. You know what that threw in there? Israel. Yes, he's talking about the church. He's just addressing the church right now, but he throws in also Israel as well. Because as we'll see later on in the book of Revelation, Israel has a national regeneration. Yes, two-thirds of Israel will be cut out and removed because of their unbelief, but the one-third, the remnant of Israel, will come to faith in Messiah. And as Paul said in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved And this passage is referring to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. They will look on me who they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child or only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. God's not done with Israel. Don't ever let anyone tell you that God is done with Israel. He's still going to work with them. The whole rest of the book of Revelation and the tribulation is to prepare them to receive Messiah, to put them in the vice grip, so they'll call out to him, and they will. The remnant does, and they repent, and they mourn for him in a good way, and a repentance way, and Israel finally accepts their Messiah. But then notice this, is there's another mourning and the implications. And all the tribes of earth will mourn because of him. Now, it's referring to the Gentiles around the planet. Now, this is a different type of mourning We know already in the book of Revelation there will be a a mass, if you want to call it, a millions and millions of people will come to faith in Christ, revival, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what you want to call it, but numerous Gentiles, too numerous to number, will come to faith in Messiah at the preaching of the 144,000. And masses of Gentiles will get saved. And obviously a masses of Gentiles will be lost, but a lot of Gentiles will be saved. This passage right here, this last point, is talking about not them coming to faith in Christ, but mourning in the fact that he has come back to put down their rebellion. Because, like I said, the book of Revelation is Jesus coming back to rule. And it goes back to Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand, the Father told the Son in Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool. I will put your enemies under your feet. That's what the tribulation is to do is to put all the worldly kings, including the Antichrist, defeated so that Christ comes back and rules and reigns without any interference. And that's what's going to happen. Unfortunately, I have to tell you some bad news. The mass of humanity will reject him, even when they see supernatural things happening all over the planet, cataclysmic events, angels flying around, demons flying visibly in front of humanity. And the masses of humanity are mourning not for salvation, but we're mourning because their rebellion is over. And their fate is sealed in doom. Let me give you a preview of this. Revelation 6, their response to the sealed judgments. And the kings of the earth and the great men, rich men and commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Instead of repenting and accepting Messiah, they want to hide from him in rocks and caves. Revelation 9, but the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works or their hands, that they should not worship demons. They actually go into demon worship in the tribulation, and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. He's talking about all the idols that people will start putting up, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And listen to this. And they did not repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. They didn't stop. Last point, Revelation 16. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, but since the plague was exceedingly great. I give you three instances of humanity's response to the three series of judgments: the, the uh, sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then the bold judgments. God gives a reprieve. He give these people some breathing room to accept His grace and mercy, and every time He gives them a reprieve, what did they do? They blaspheme me. They run from him. They reject him. That's what this passage is talking to the church, that ultimately, ultimately, the masses of humanity that you see out before you in this world will reject him despite all the supernatural events that they will see. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's the nature of sin. It is crazy, isn't it? It continues on, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Christ is the speaker here, and he is saying, I'm coming back. I am the Almighty, and here's what the message is by saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the eternal God, and I am the true king of this planet. I created it, and I'm in charge, and I'm coming back to take over this planet, and I'm giving you a warning I'm offering grace and mercy to you. I'm offering shalom if you will receive it. But if you don't receive it in the time I have allotted to you, your doom will be sealed. It is not that I want to punish people. I don't take any delight in the in, in, in the death of the wicked. I want all to be saved. But there comes an end point. There's a payday someday. And I'm coming back to rule. And if you're not prepared to meet me, your doom will be sealed. And I'm giving you the warning. I have as sovereign, as the Alpha and the Omega, I have the legal right to rule your planet, is what Jesus is saying. Right now you do not see me rule your planet because de facto humans and Satan are ruling your planet. I have allowed this in my sovereignty because I have allowed human freedom. I am giving humans a probationary period to make their decision. I've given the angels a probationary period. Satan's doom is sealed, but yet I am still letting him function de facto as the god of your world. But when I come back, he's dethroned and so is all humanity because I will take David's throne. That's what he is saying to the church. I am taking my rightful place, not only de jure but de facto as well. Legal right and in reality I will rule with a rod of iron. Right now we don't see that rod of iron. Hence the application. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, behold, I come in the clouds, he is telling you and I, your future is secure. I promise I will make it happen for you because I am the Alpha and the Omega. So what it does for us, it brings us back to understanding our purpose in life. Think about this. He has told us where we have come from. This is what I had to do for you. I'm the God of relationship, and I made a way for you to come back to me through my son. Now I give you position. You're a king priest, and I've given you multiple, multiple positions to serve me, to give you purpose for the here and now. And now I'm telling you where you're going. You're going to rule and reign with me in the Messianic kingdom, and it's for sure going to happen because I'm taking my right back. And you're going to be with me. Notice, past, present, and future have all been ta- taken care of. And he says, you're mine. And you have a purpose. I have a plan for you. So what are we supposed to do with a future security like this? This truth, and this is how future events that are talked about are supposed to help us. This is what the whole book of Revelation is about. It encourages us in our pain. A lot of you today are dealing with a lot of pain. Whether it's health issues, physical issues, relational issues, or just dealing with life. There's a bunch of junk going on, and it causes you pain, does it not? Your future being secured about this truth is supposed to help you with the pain, encourage you. God's saying, I understand you're in pain, but there's a future coming where there is no pain. That brings us hope. The second thing it does is prioritizes what we are doing. It defines our life. If God is prepping you for the next life, what are you doing for that? It defines our life. So what it does, it clarifies our priorities. What matters and what doesn't matter? Why would I want to spend any time on anything that doesn't matter? And three, it makes us objective. This future destiny for us, what it means is... I know what's happening to me. I know where I'm going, and I don't have to be ruled by my emotions. That's how a lot of people run their lives. They're ruled by how they feel. And God's saying, no, take my word for it. It's not based on how you feel. It's what I've said because I require faith. And this helps me see the bigger picture. So it makes us objective, not based on feelings. And four, it gives us perspective. What do you mean? When you see your life in view of eternity, in view of the messianic kingdom and what God has created for us, it makes you have a a better appreciation for the sliver of pain that you're going through, that it's an event. Then maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year, maybe it's a decade of pain that you're going through. I don't know. But... How does that match up to the big picture? The big picture is you will rule and reign forever. After 10,000 years, you'll still be ruling and reigning. After a million years, you'll still be ruling and reigning. How does that give perspective of what you're going through right now? I can tell you this. All it will be is like one bad night in a bad hotel, and that's it. <laughs> and that's how you remember this life, in perspective of eternity, right? Right? And the last thing, it gives us purpose. People who don't know their destiny don't know where they're going. They're wandering aimlessly through life, and we know where we're going. That future is secure in Christ. All of this gives us purpose, meaning in life. Your life is valuable because Christ died for you, giving you a position, and giving giving you a future. That's all what the world's looking for, by the way, guys. That's all what they're looking for, But they won't go to Christ. You know why? They don't want to change. They don't want to give that stuff up. They like it. They like the money. They like the power. They like the prestige. They don't want to give that that stuff up. It's like the rich young ruler, sell all you have and come follow me. And what did he do? He went away sad. He didn't want to give the money up, right? That's why they don't come. If they did come, they would find their true life. But let's talk about us, and we'll end this on, on an illustration. As you've noticed, you get a picture of God, you get a picture of what He's done for you and where we're going. If you have any mixture of false ideas in there about God, about yourself, about your identity, about your future, you'll get a warped version of Christianity. You'll get a worldly version of Christianity, and it will lead into behavior that you don't know why you're doing. And so... It's kind of what you have to do when you come to faith in Christ and all the stuff that you've learned up to this point before meeting Christ and understanding the Bible, all of what you've learned in life from the secular world has to be dumped. You have to dump it. Paul talked about his background one time. He says he had high education. Paul's IQ must have been off the charts, man. He had, he had known all kinds of languages. He was in the best schools in Israel. And he, what did he say about it? I consider it all dung. Wow, really? Yes. Compared to what I've learned through Christ, you know, with the Bible and, 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 and whatnot. And that's how you have to become. You have to jettison your misunderstandings about God, about your identity, in order to enjoy what God has done for you. Otherwise, you won't enjoy it. I'll give you an illustration. Remember Bruce Lee? sometimes see his movies, man, and that dude was fast, man. But anyway, he had his own version of martial arts, if you know the story about Bruce Lee. And so he had developed his own way of doing things, and it's very effective, I guess. But anyway, a guy came to him one day and says, I'm a martial artist, but I want to learn your style of martial arts. And Bruce says, okay. And so Bruce went and got two cups, and he brought the two cups out. And he sat it before the guy. And he says, this cup right here represents all your knowledge about martial arts that you have gained on your own in practicing martial arts. And he goes, on this second cup is all of my knowledge about martial arts. In order for you to understand my martial arts, I need you to take this cup that you have filled up And dump it all out of what you've learned. For in doing so, that is the only way I can pour my style of martial arts into you, is you must get rid of the martial arts you've learned. And I thought, wow, what a good illustration. That's exactly what God is saying to the church The stuff you and I have created about life that we've, whether we've experienced it, we've learned from other people, our distorted views of God, our mixed values, that's our cup, and God's saying, if you want to have purpose in life, I need you to dump that out because it doesn't reflect anything I've done for you. I have this cup, and I need to have an empty cup for me to pour myself into all this information that I have. Huh, that's tough. That process is hard. You're saying we have to die to self, die to what we've learned? Yeah. Yeah, you have. It's hard. you got to dump it. But guys, it's well worth the loss for what you can gain. Jesus said that about life, didn't he? If you lose your life, you gain it. Isn't that a paradox? But you lose. You die to self in order to gain that abundant life. And if you do that, if you're willing to go through the process and dump the junk in your life and accept the true revelation from God, He promises you'll be set free. You will experience the abundant life and the very capstone of the abundant life, shalom, peace. I hope you have that peace today. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.